Welcome into Tapping Vegas, brought to you by Better and Green. We have the bets that cash that make Vegas crash. If you need money in a flash, we're making a splash unlike that other trash. We're breaking down the latest clash, Bobby. We're breaking down Alexander Volkanovsky versus Ilya Taporia. Last week, though, we made money again. We have not had a losing week. How did we do last week? Last week, we went up three units. Uh, so, so far, we're 11 and a half on the year and 45 units of all time. Last week, we went up three based off a Bogdan Guskov money line win. And also, Adolfo Vieira was the underdog, I do believe, on the money line. Plus, he also was a pretty sizable favorite to win by submission, which was just baffling to us. But you and I uh, obviously managed to catch on to that and take advantage. And hopefully, those of you out there listening and watching, took advantage of that pretty uh, bizarre odds making on that one. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. We did great. I love this card even more. I can't wait to get into it. I'm going to let you break down this first one. Who do we have first? All right. So the first fight we're going to be going over on this uh, stacked pay-per-view main card is going to be Anthony Hernandez versus Roman Kopilov. And this is a pretty exciting fight that at first I was skeptical of as to why it was given a main card slot on a pay-per-view card. But both of these guys, Anthony Hernandez and Roman Kopilov, I don't necessarily want to say they could be championship material in the men's 185-pound division, but they're definitely fun fighters. They're definitely guys who are exciting to watch in 185 and could you know, potentially hang around the top 15 for a few years to come. So I'm pretty excited to see them matched up against each other. It's a good matchmaking for two young prospects in the division. See, you know, who's going to take that next step forward in their UFC career. I've been watching Anthony Hernandez since his uh, Dana White's Contender Series debut back in 2018, I believe. Uh, you've heard me go over Kopilov quite a bit since I've started uh, tapping Vegas with the GM report and also since the article days from last year. So Kopilov is a guy I've already done a lot of coverage for. Anthony Hernandez, not so much. So this fight is really interesting in terms of the betting odds on it for me right now, because right now, Anthony Hernandez is a pretty sizable favorite, according to DraftKings, at a minus 258 to Kopilov's plus 210. And this is the fight where I'm really really interested in how the odds makers came to those conclusions because once again both of these guys are maybe not necessarily championship material but just analyzing their techniques their skill their records etc cetera, etc cetera, i'm not really seeing a clear you know advantage or disadvantage between these two guys as so great as to create such a mismatch from a betting perspective anthony hernandez is Primarily a guy who has like a really good shot at submissions. Uh, coincidentally enough, he actually holds a pretty impressive submission victory over Hidalfo Vieira, who we covered on last card. Yeah, So that's pretty impressive that he was able to sub uh, BJJ Black Belt of the caliber of Vieira. But Kapilov, in my eyes, definitely has the advantage in the striking department. And it's especially beneficial to Kapilov because thus far, he's actually – won a lot of his UFC fights by KOTKO. I was just looking at it, and I believe he's actually only went to decision possibly once in the UFC. Let me double-check to be sure of that. But since he's, yeah, since he's been in the UFC, he's only went to decision once 
and that was in 2021 against Albert Durayev, and he lost that, unfortunately. But other than that, uh, all of 2023, he was on a three-fight straight KOTKO uh, finish run there, Roman Kopilov was. And they also all came in round two, coincidentally enough. I thought that was a bit odd as well, that all of Kopilov's KOTKO wins last year, all three were in the second round. And then he also had one in round three that was in 2022. 2021, as I said, was the Durayev loss by decision. He didn't fight in 2020, and in 2019, he lost by sub to Carl Roberson. So other than that, that's really the biggest blemish I see on Kopilov right now that does make me a little hesitant as to his future is it's uh, pretty concerning that he lost to Carl Roberson, a guy who's no longer in the UFC and hasn't been for a little while now, and a guy who's not particularly known as a strong submission threat. But 2019, he's had a lot of time to grow, a lot of time to learn, work on technique, etc., I'm hoping Kopilov has taken that as a learning experience and worked on submission defense, worked on some of his grappling defense, takedown defense, things of that nature, because he's probably definitely going to need it against Hernandez in this fight. I anticipate Hernandez will strike, obviously, if given the opportunity, but he does seem to primarily uh, win by submission, and he actively will find situations to set up submissions when they are presented to him. Uh, so... Even though he does have some KOTKO wins of his own, I'm thinking in a pure striking match, if they're just trying to stand and trade, I'm liking Kopilov's chances, especially since Hernandez is orthodox. Uh, so far, as a southpaw, Kopilov has done his best work, and he has his best tools available to him, uh, such as his body kicks. Uh, body kicks, high kicks, uh, calf kicks, his punches, all of his power punches with the left hand, uh, you know, left leg kicks, things of that nature, they're all available to him based off having an orthodox opponent like Anthony Hernandez. So the only thing that really concerns me is I'm a little worried. I'd be more concerned if he was a southpaw himself, uh, but Anthony Hernandez is not. But Kapilov kind of has a bad habit of walking himself when he circles out in these striking exchanges. It's a good thing because he circles to the left of his orthodox opponent, so he avoids that right hand, which is an orthodox opponent's uh, power hand, obviously. But he leaves himself in doing that open to left hook counters. So that's just my biggest concern, aside from the grappling potential and the sub potential. I just worry that uh, Kopilov potentially could be leaving himself open to some left hook counters since he loves circling to that left-hand side of all of his orthodox opponents to avoid the right power shot. But other than that, that's not enough to shy me away from Kopilov, especially at the odds, like I said, being as drastic as they are. At plus 210, I love those odds for Kopilov, and considering his recent history of a three-fight KO-TKO win streak all coming in the second round, funny enough, I'm actually going to go ahead and say that not only is the money line enticing at plus 210, but if you want to put money on Copylove by KO, TKO, DQ, that is plus 350. So that's also very juicy and very tantalizing considering you have a guy with a history, very recent history, of having round, uh, round two KO, TKOs and has only been to decision once in his career in the UFC since 2019. What do you think, Ben? 
very good breakdown, Bobby. And I think that we're seeing this fight very similar. Um, Kapilov, very dangerous standing. And his wrestling game is, is not great. His grappling game is not great. Really good at working the body and a very good understanding of foot placement, angles, uh, body positioning uh, while standing. So I think that he definitely has the advantage there. Anthony Hernandez, though, just I think he has decent wrestling. Uh, he's super tough. That's the thing. I mean, this guy is about as tough as they come. He's beat really good competition. I was looking at uh, his record. He's beat guys like Barrow, Vieira, and then Allen, who are all big names uh, in that division. He leaves big openings, though, and that's going to be where Kapilov, uh, he's going to have a chance there. He's going to have a chance to catch Hernandez. Um, as far as method goes, I'm trying to look that up right now, actually. Um with Hernandez, I, I he's got such a high price, but looking at it, it's about a fifty-four thousand dollar purse right now over on Pickett. Um, Hernandez has forty-two percent of the bets, so this is actually pretty split. Uh, more people on the Kopulov side, but he's getting seventy-two percent of the money, so that means that there's a lot of people uh, hedging on Hernandez here. And with Hernandez, I agree with you. This feels like a very even fight. Um, maybe not like the Volkanovski Teporia, the the really really close, but two fifty and two ten seem really high, and I don't know the reason for that, except trying to get people on the Kopulov side, maybe, and not on the Hernandez side, and people aren't biting, just throwing more money on Hernandez. Um. I need to look up some of the methods right now. Hernandez, TKO, 400, submission, 180, decision, 275. This is tough. I, I'm going to be on the Hernandez side. I think Hernandez wins. I don't know, though. Uh, I, re I don't think he gets the knockout. So I know the 400 is juicy, but I almost want to say Anthony Hernandez by decision at the plus 275 because I can see this being a lot like, um, I think, the last, like, Evolov fight and the Moicano fight where Hernandez, like nobody gets knocked out and Hernandez just controls the fight. It ends up being kind of boring and it just wins based on control. That's definitely a possibility for sure. If, uh, especially if Hernandez does try to go with a grappling heavy game plan, uh, it's been a while since Kapilov has been tested in that regard. So that would be interesting to see. I think that'd be a smart decision by him too. Cause I think if he's just going to stand and bang with Kapilov, I don't know if he's going to win that. Yeah. 100%. If it's a purely striking affair, I think Kapilov definitely has the decided edge in that regard. Yeah. Next part we're going to talk about is Merab Deval. I'm going to call him Merab D <laughs> versus <laughs> Henry Cejudo. Uh, just, uh, Forewarning, I've always been as a Hudo guy. Uh, he's kind of back when I was really into... I'm starting to get really into UFC again, especially with this show. Back in the heyday, back when I was in high school, so I was personally wrestling. Uh, Henry was like my dude, man. He was like one of the guys I just loved so much. Um, World-class wrestler, Olympic gold medalist, great movement. I don't have any gas concerns because Cejudo... I mean, every fight he fights is like a five-round fight, and this is going to be a three-round fight. So I don't have any concerns about him. The thing that worries me about Cejudo is his hesitant fists. Um, it just seems like he's a little bit more hesitant to pull the trigger, whereas I'm looking at Marab. Talk about no gas concerns. 
this dude, I don't know if he has a gas tank. This dude's just, he's uh he's like an electric fighter, man. <laughs> he charges up before you don't have to worry about gas. Um, unbelievably tough too. I mean, I think I saw one fight. He, it looked like he went out, but the dude was able to keep going and stay in it. Uh, goes running around, just eating punches and ended up winning the fight. I believe in the second, um, what stands out to me though, is he is very high grappling as in his last fight. He had 49 takedown attempts, but did the dude have 49 takedowns? No. Why? Cause I feel like his slop, his grappling gets sloppy. And I think against a guy like Cejudo, I think that's going to be a big problem. He's either going to have to slow it down and really uh, take his shots or keep doing what he's doing. I just think Cejudo is going to be able to defend it. And looking at Merab, he's super decision heavy too. I don't know if this goes to full three. I, I just don't see him outworking Henry. And I mean, absolutely, that's the way. If he is going to win, that's what he has to do. I just don't think his wrestling is is up to par. And Henry Cejudo is, I have right now, at a plus 180. Um, so he's a pretty nice underdog. He just came back out of retirement, had a fight, lost. So if this was his first fight out of retirement, I'd be more worried about the rust. I feel like he got that rust knocked off. He's ready to go. Mariab on like an eight fight win streak or whatever. Dude's been absolutely lights out. I think this might be a road bump for him. Both of these guys are fantastic. I really like both of these guys. I'm going to side with Henry. Um, looking at their split right now, it's about a $40,000 purse at the moment uh, over on Pickett. Bet percentage, I've got 16% of the bets and only, was that about six? It doesn't even show his percentage because Mariab has got 93.8%. So about 6% of the money of on Cejudo. I don't know. I think I'm going to take the chance. I'm going to take the chance on him. What do you think, Bobby? This is a tough one for me, but at the same time, I have to remind myself that this isn't 2020 anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> and it's yeah. not even 2019. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of talk about Kamaru Uzman being the CEO of EPO. I really think that's Marab Devishvili. I really think that guy's the CEO of EPO. And it's funny that you mentioned how he set the record for takedowns in his last fight against Peter Yan. R.I.P. Peter, Peter Yan, a guy I'm pretty high on, but we know how that goes. Anyway, so you said 49 takedowns in that fight, correct? <clears throat> Do you know how many takedowns, and you don't get credit for this, I'm just bringing it up to showcase a point. Do you know how many takedowns of those 49 Peter Yan defended? Probably like, what, 38 of them? 38, exactly. So he defended 38 takedowns. So what does this mean? You're asking yourself this at home. You're scratching your head. Bobby, what does it all mean? The numbers, Mason, what do they mean? It means this. Khabib Nurmagomedov got a lot of crap. Islam Makashev gets crap for being boring fighters who just, you know, crawl on your legs, crotch sniff if you're Jorge Masvidal. <clears throat> Excuse me, whatever you want to call it. Crotch sniffing, leg humping, whatever. Here's the point, though. Yes, they attempt a lot of takedowns. Islam Makashev, Habib, those guys that attempt a lot of takedowns. They also succeed on a lot of takedowns. Habib set the record before Marab with takedowns against, I believe it was, it wasn't Gleason Tebow, 
it was some other guy. I forget who it was right now off the top of my head. But the point is, when he set the takedown record, he actually had takedowns. Marab is an entirely different vein of grappler where, yeah, he will get the takedown and he'll get credited for it and you'll get up. But the problem is he literally point fights, it seems like, instead of like karate boxing point fighting like a Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, he's like the grappling equivalent of just yes. point fighting. Like you get up from a takedown after five seconds, it doesn't matter. He still scored the takedown. All the judges know is that it's secured. It counts. So all they see is that 49 or whatever the final number ends up being, and he still wins the fight. When he fought Jose Aldo, it was a decision. Like all of his wins except the one over Marlon Marias was, that was yeah. his only KO against a guy who – had already had a shot chin by that point. He had no chin left. He was getting KO'd left and right. And the words of McGregor, a gust of wind, and he does the chicken dance. <laughs> but Marab did 15 takedown attempts against Jose Aldo. Didn't secure a single one. Did not register a single takedown in 15 attempts, but he was the busier guy over 15 minutes and took home the unanimous decision win. So it's just ironic that we've come full circle to you don't know what you have until it's gone. Coming up, Habib and Islam were the guys who were boring. They never finished fights, even though they finished quite a few fights by sub, KO, TKO, whatever, very active, exciting guys. And now Marab's coming up through the ranks of 135 at bantamweight. And the dude is just point fighting by grappling. And it doesn't matter if you get up after five seconds. He's literally got the cardio to keep point fighting and keep just throwing strikes. Once again, doesn't matter if the strikes are doing damage. It doesn't matter what percentage of force they're hitting with, et cetera, et cetera. He's winning fights purely based off just being busy, just yep. throwing, just volume is all it is. And it's insanely boring. It really is. And there's a lot of you out there who don't like to hear it, I'm sorry, just like you don't like living in your mom's basement, you're not going to like hearing that Marab is a boring guy. And don't get me wrong, I can appreciate the skill and the drugs it takes to be able to have that kind of pace over 15 minutes to be able to attempt 49 takedowns and not even secure, you know, even half of those and still look like at the end of 15 minutes of 49 attempted takedowns and God knows how many significant strikes and just strike attempts. And you don't even look like you barely taken a breath. I, I get that it is difficult. I get that it does take skill, et cetera, et cetera. And I do respect that, but I'm not going to sit here and pretend to you. Like when I hear that there's a Marab Divisvili fight that I'm salivating to watch it and tune in, I, I'm just not. So all this to say Henry Cejudo is a legend, as he will be quick to tell you himself. He's an Olympic gold medalist, for Christ's sake. <laughs> I mean, come on now. So Henry Cejudo is a great fighter, and he got out at the right time when he first retired in 2020. He could have rode off into the sunset, and yeah, as time went on, he falls victim to what everybody does and the what-ifs and the speculation starts about, well, if he would have kept fighting, he would have lost. This guy would have beat him, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. But eventually over time that goes away because it's just speculation. It's just like when people talk about, well, John Jones would have lost to this guy or whatever the case may be. Point is, Cejudo got out at the right time in 2020, 
And then he should have just rode off into the sunset after he beat TJ Dillashaw like a scoted dog. And that guy, the real CEO of EPO, once again, the drug that keeps getting mentioned, TJ Dillashaw, Dillashaw, excuse me, pissed hot for EPO. And he had already lost the belt to Cejudo by knockout to add insult to injury. And so Cejudo defended the belt once, rode off into the sunset. He made a mistake, I feel like, by overplaying his hand, and he thought the UFC would chase him as a result of that retirement, and they didn't. So when he realized how quick they were to move on and how they essentially you know, didn't chase after him after he retired after beating Dominic Cruz in 2020, he couldn't just stay away. He couldn't just accept the fact that, you know, they weren't going to give him what he wanted, be it increased pay, you know, super fights, whatever it was. I forget at the time he was looking for when he retired after beating Dom. They weren't going to give it to him, but he wasn't content. So he came back last year in May and it was controversial, apparently. And it was once again a boring fight. And it's been his only fight since 2020. So pretty big gap here in fighting three years that he went. And then last year lost a decision to Aljamain Sterling. So I think he should have just stayed retired is what I'm getting at. I think he should have just let it go. Should have just enjoyed the illustrious career and all the, you know, accolades he had already had as an Olympic gold medalist, as a, you know, bantamweight champion who made a successful defense against another legend uh, in Dominic Cruz, that type of thing, you know, flyweight champion, uh, also another accolade he's had. But Aljamain Sterling is a teammate and training partner, very close training partner of Marav Devishvili. So Aljamain just got done training and preparing for Cejudo last year and beat him, even though it was by split decision. And that was a five-round uh, five fight, so 25 minutes, and he beat him. Now Devishvili is, like I said, a training partner and close friend of Sterling, so this is the second time that their camp has had an opportunity to prepare for and get used to game planning for Henry Cejudo. And Aljamain Sterling does not have the gas tank, does not have the effective cardio, does not have the pressure, et cetera, et cetera, all the accolades and attributes that Marab has. And I hate to do MMA math, but this is pretty close math here considering the guys are from the same gym and all that. But if you have basically a new and improved and even better version of Aljamain Sterling fighting this same fight against Henry Cejudo, I think it's going to be a more convincing win. And uh, it's going to be by decision. Let's not kid ourselves here. And it's going to be a boring, ugly fight, probably with another high takedown attempt. But I just can't really say anything with confidence uh, to really get me on board with Henry Cejudo. From a personal standpoint, would I love for him to win? Hell yes, I would love for him to win and end this nightmare that is, you know, EPO cardio takedown attempts and, you know, pitter-patter little strikes and all that. I would love for it to happen, but the, the theme of this card as we continue to go on is going to be I try not to let my personal feelings about fighters get in the way of my realism and my betting analysis and technical analysis, et cetera. And this is going to be the first fight where my heart wants Cejudo to win, but I'm not going to put my money and I'm not going to want you to put your money on Cejudo. And even though Devishvili's at minus 225, 
Cejudo's at plus 185, and Devish by decision is a minus 135. None of these are going to make you money. I'm not going to gas you up like everybody else and try to act like it's going to be a moneymaker. This fight, it's it's pretty ugly. It's pretty bad. But, I mean, what can you say? What can you do when you pretty much know what the outcome is going to be? So, Devishvili by decision at minus 135. He's a minus 225 on money line. I mean, to try to take the edge off <laughs> – I'm almost laughing suggesting it, but hey, why not? <clears throat> Plus sixteen hundred for sub. I wouldn't hate it. <clears throat> so I wouldn't hate it. Plus sixteen hundred by sub. <clears throat> KOTKO plus five fifty. Muller Marias is the only guy he's KOTKO'd. Could he do it to Cejudo? Cejudo's thirty-seven. Cejudo's not got a lot of miles, so I can't really say that. <clears throat> can't really say his you know chin's been tested. But I wouldn't call you absolutely out of your mind if you even wanted to go Devishvili plus 550 KOTKO just to kind of take the take the edge off that minus 225 money line. You know, breaking down this fight, I could not tell. I think this was the only one that we've covered that I, I could not tell if if what I was saying and when I was picking my person, if I was really believing what I was if my heart was dictating what my head was thinking, because in my yeah. head, I just see it like Henry's so much better wrestler. The other dude, exactly what you said. Rob's just so much volume. I think that Henry can like, just like I said with Hernandez, just control the fight. I don't know if that's right at all <laughs> because everything you said, I absolutely agree with too. I, I think this fight is going to be, this card is going to be absolutely excellent. Yeah, it's going to be a really tough fight. It's just, it's just, it, it all goes back to, I think Henry Cejudo will defend the takedown. I do believe and agree he is the better wrestler, but the bottom line is at the end of the day, it's not going to matter. It's not right. going to, you don't right. like, just like Peter Yan didn't get points for defending 38 takedowns. Right. You know, call it a flaw, call it, you hate it, whatever, whatever. Unfortunately, right now, as it stands, that's how the judging criteria is determined, and it only matters how many takedowns you get and you attempt. Defending takedowns awards no points, unfortunately. And though I personally disagree with that, especially when you defend 38 damn takedowns out of 49 attempts, I feel like you should get something at least. That's how the rules are set up. Right now, it's not changing, so... That's just that's just where Henry's going to find himself. He'll probably defend 50 of the 60 attempts, but all judges are going to see is 60 attempts and he got like 10 of them, so. Right. And I I I heard somebody say this quote. I forgot who it was, but that it's at the end of the day it's not a wrestling match, it's an MMA fight. So, uh, that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Right. All right. Uh <laughs> have fun with this next fight, man. Oh, is this uh, Ian Gary versus <laughs> Jeff Neal? It is. Yeah. So this is going to be another fight where my heart and my desires want the outcome to be vastly different than what I know, unfortunately, the reality is going to be. So Jeff Neal and Ian Gary. I'm not even going to rag on Ian Gary anymore. The guy's a victim. I'm just going to get to the facts. <laughs> Ian Gary, the, the problem with Ian Gary is – 
in all of his fights I watched uh, last time, I studied for him and we prepared for him when he was supposed to fight Luke, yep. which he pulled out of and then proceeded to take a picture of him crying on like the doctor's examination table and your local uh, <laughs> local medical clinic, probably while getting a gonorrhea exam because of his wife. <laughs> anyway, so Ian Gary was uh, basically in a lot of the footage I was studying of his very much getting pressured against the fence by almost everybody he fought. It was very easy to back him up against the cage and put him in a position where he was limited in the height and reach advantage that he usually carries in his fights and limited in his ability to throw like his uh, high kick that he favors. He's got a really nice high kick that he throws, really nice uh, right straight that he throws, things of that nature. So people have tried to game plan for him accordingly to take those things away from him. They have tried to pressure him, which is always good, especially for a guy that does throw as many head kicks and just various kicks in general as he throws. You definitely want to crowd the kicker and try to to deny him as much space as possible. But to his credit, Ian Gary was also really adept at finding ways to safely circle out and get off the cage and reestablish his distance, reestablish his range, his jab, and all those tools that work for him. And thus far, he's been successful. I will also give him credit and say that in his last fight with Neil Magny, I also started to show signs of him evolving and him being the guy doing the pressuring instead of getting pressured. Now, if only he could apply some of these same principles to his bedroom and his marriage, maybe he'd have a little bit better life. But I digress. The point is, Jeff Neal is a very formidable test for Ian Gary. I will say that. This is going to be one of his toughest tests and his biggest challenge to date. And Jeff Neal, not that long ago, gave Shavkat Rachmanov, a guy we're very high on on this show, one hell of a fight. He really took it to Shavkat and gave Shavkat his biggest test today and very narrowly lost uh, by rear naked choke, I believe, in the third round of the three-round fight. <clears throat> so this is a tough one. Uh, Jeff Neal was also kind of a dark horse of the division for a long time, a guy I was really, really high on personally. Uh, guys like Jack Slack were very high on him for a while, etc. A guy very highly touted for a while in the division that, unfortunately, I don't really know how or why he fell off the face of the earth and kind of lost a lot of those skills and that talent and etc. But he did, and it's unfortunate. So, I don't know. It, it's tough. And another thing is Jeff Neal is a southpaw, which might make things interesting add a different dynamic to it. And he does have some power and he does also make really good use of uh, the Southpaw double where he will start jabbing you, uh, jabbing you with his right hand, the jab hand for a Southpaw. And then you'll anticipate the jab and you'll get kind of fixated on that. And then when you're not uh, looking for it, he'll throw up like the right high kick, like that same side high kick. And then you'll get knocked out or you'll get stunned and then you have to worry about two things coming at you, either the right-hand jab or the right high kick, and it just kind of overwhelms you, and that's how he ended up knocking out Frank Camacho. 
So that could potentially pose uh, a wrinkle in the game to Ian Gary. But another thing that makes me lean towards Ian Gary in this is just like Shavkat managed to eventually kind of uh, take advantage of clinch situations with Jeff Neal. I think Ian Gary's definitely going to take advantage of clinch situations uh, with Jeff Neal, just like Shafcott did, because Ian Gary, it's already a core game plan of his to clinch a lot and to use that uh, length to his advantage in the clinch situation and the height that he has to just kind of wear on guys and just lay on them and kind of pressure them, especially since he added that element to his game after the Magni fight. So I don't think Jeff Neal is really going to find any respite in the clinch. If he tries it, I think Ian Gary's going to have the advantage there. I think overall Ian Gary's going to have the striking advantage. I don't think either one of them is going to grapple. The extent of their grappling will be cage work because of the clinch, but I don't really think that it's going to result in any meaningful takedowns or trips or anything of that nature. So overall, uh, it's tough. And once again, my heart, and everything in me wants Jeff Neal to win and Jeff Neal to make this a dogfight, especially after the whole Ian Gary wearing the mugshot bullcrap that he's pulling, being like a dollar store Conor McGregor. But I just think Ian Gary does have, to his credit, I hate the guy, but I can't deny what I see in front of me. He does have some talent. He does seem to be actively evolving. He does seem to be ascending. Jeff Neal, unfortunately, is descending and declining. So, yeah, I'm going to pick Ian Gary on this. Minus 230, he's not giving you a good money line. Plus 190 for Jeff Neal looks tantalizing, but as I said, I feel like it's a setup. I do like how Gary, by KO, TKO, DQ, is a plus 250. So that I take the edge off the money line. I do think this is a fight where he can get, a, get the KO, TKO. Subs plus 800, that's tantalizing. I don't think he's going to get a sub. Don't foresee, as I said, grappling playing much role in this fight. Uh, plus 140 by decision is not bad either. It is a three, three uh, five-minute round, so 15-minute fight. Neil is tough, but he did get choked out by Shavkat late in the third. Uh, I'm still going to go Gary by KOTKO just because you get a better value. I get decisions safer. But I'm, I'm gonna. This is a fight where I'm willing to take a little bit more risk on. Uh, and once again, since this is a guy I doesn't like, that should tell you a lot that I am still betting on him for KO TKO. So Gary to take the edge off by KO TKO plus two fifty right now on DraftKings. That's what I'm. That's where I'm going. What about you, Ben? Dude, I am. I must be drinking the Kool Aid this week. Then uh, it might not look too hot on the. Uh, the the end of the episode graphic but i think we need to start using their like nicknames more too because we got jeff hands of steel neil and we got ian my wife's boyfriend said we could order a pizza gary uh, <laughs> neil neil the dude he nearly outlasted shavkat like that really impressed me because i think shavkat is one of the best in that whole division right now i think uh, Neil, really good striking. He wants to stand, so he's going to be standing banging. We know that. Great takedown defense, too. Looking at Ian Gary, what goes great with pizza? Soda. If you go buy a 12-pack of soda, Bobby, what do what does that soda come in? Uh, if I buy a 12-pack of soda, 
I'm a can guy personally. You're a can guy personally. Well, isn't that interesting that Ian Gary's 13 and 0 and only has one real fight because he fought 12 cans? Um, oh, 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 yeah. That Neil Magny was the only person he's actually fought so far. All the other ones, out as far as I'm concerned, Ian Gary's going in one and and I think Neil's gonna knock him the fuck out. I'm gonna, I hope so. I'm gonna put it right now. Ian Gear, he's got fast kicks, but poor strike defense, and he will eat punches. Um, he ran from Luke. Let's be honest. We did all that research. We talked about it. Uh, we ended up putting in more work for this Luke Gary fight than Ian Gary did. Uh, d- dude's a punk, and he's gonna get punked in this fight. I'm gonna have Gary for KO. You can do Gary money line at plus one ninety. Could go to decision. Uh, Neil, I, if I say Gary, I apologize. Neil is plus, uh, plus one ninety is what I have right now to win by knockout plus three fifty. Plus three fifty. I think Ian Gary's going to get humbled. You definitely get the biggest balls award for this show right now. That's for <laughs> sure. I'll give you that. You got balls, kid. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I like uh, the way you think. 83% of people would agree with you because the money and the bets are pretty heavily on uh, Ian Gary. Uh, it looks like Neil's got 16% of the bets, 12% of the money, so that's some sharp money coming in on Gary. But, dude, I'm I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm rolling with Neil. I don't blame you, man. I hope it happens. I, I, I just – my heart can't take much more disappointment from being a long-term MMA fan. <laughs> Well, let's talk about this next fight I'm super excited about. It's Robert Whitaker versus Paulo Costa, the inflated balloon animal. Um, Another fight, pretty high odds. Uh, Whitaker is minus in the 200 somewhere. Uh, I don't know when you're watching this right now. I've got minus 250. Paulo Costa plus 205. Pretty similar uh, range, pretty similar in age. What I see from Whitaker is he's light on his feet. He stays out of range. I think he's got the grappling edge. He's got a great gas tank. He does have low hands, though, but I think Whitaker has a great resume. He's fought guys, and win or lose, uh, you get that experience. So he's fought guys like Dreykus, who is the current champion, Adesanya twice, who was the champion, Vittori, Cannoneer, Till, and Romero. Um, Paulo Costa, no striking defense from that guy. He's got kickboxer fighting style. He just tries to outstrength dudes. Uh, just a showboater, pretty boy. Uh, I don't see, I think Whitaker is a fighter. I think Costa, I think he's doing it for a paycheck and for the fame. I just really think Whitaker is going to take it to him. It could absolutely be a decision. I probably would go decision. With Whitaker, I just don't know if he's able to knock out Costa or get the sub. Uh, Costa, he's just not talented to me, and I don't think he's just going to be able to out-muscle and bully Whitaker. What do you think? I think think come Saturday night, we will all be condoms, as Paulo Costa himself said, the eraser man, the rubber man. So... What I, th- what I think is this. <clears throat> so, Paulo Costa, I wonder if he's going to show up. And that's the first thing I wonder. It's been a very right. long time since the guy last fought. He's coming off a very long layoff. His last fight was a win over Luke Rockhold, which is not much of an accomplishment in this day and age. 
because when he last fought Luke Rockhold, that was back in 2022. And that was a decision win in August of 2022 against Luke Rockhold. Now, Luke Rockhold is a legend and all these other things that I don't need to waste breath saying. But in 2022, he's a shell of his former self, and he's not even in MMA anymore. He's doing bare-knuckle boxing, and I should unfortunately tell you all that there is needed to know about Luke Rockhold's career and trajectory since you know losing to Paulo back in August of 2022. So before that, he only fought once in 2021. And in 2020 was when Israel Adesanya defeated him. So Paulo Costa is a guy I was really high on for a very long time. Since his debut in 2017, I pretty much had watched almost all of his fights live. I had the privilege of being able to do that, just kind of following along with his career as he made his ascension. And in the words of Jack Slack, shout out to him. He is without a doubt the juiciest slot on the roster. Uh, If you think he's not on drugs, you're merely arguing that he has not failed a test, which in and of itself is really remarkable that as much as USADA has tested him over the years that USADA was active throughout his career, they were only able to catch him for using an IV and they only gave him a slap on the wrist for it. And it just kind of feels like catching Al Capone and all the FBI ever could charge him with was tax evasion. It's pretty impressive, actually, all things considered. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of the issue, though. Paulo Costa, aside from inactivity, has not evolved much in his UFC career. Now, when he was on the Ultimate Fighter with Chel Sonnen and Vanderlei Silva on the Ultimate Fighter Brazil, that was when he went under his biggest transformation because on the ultimate fighter when he was being coached uh, by those two gentlemen on that show and learning from them and all that, he started off as a guy who was trying to use his BJJ was trying to use his wrestling. And it resulted in him being just like a really muscle bound guy who would just completely exhaust himself chasing very sloppy takedowns. And it got him surprisingly pretty far on the show uh, to the finals or semifinals, I do believe. I'm about to look it up while I continue talking. So it's not like it wasn't something that took him pretty far on the show because it definitely did. The problem is, yeah, it took him all the way to uh, the quarterfinal round, uh, being that, you know, juiced up, sloppy takedown chasing guy who for the whole 15 minutes would just go after it nonstop. I mean, he got a guillotine choke finish in round two on his first fight in the elimination round of the show, but then lost a split decision. So it's not like he got completely destroyed in the quarterfinals. Then after that, he went back to the regional scene for a bit, then came into the UFC. So in between the ultimate fighter and making his way officially into the UFC, the biggest transformation he underwent was he started to become a guy who ever since the ultimate fighter, I've never seen him even attempt to take down. I've never seen him even use his wrestling or use any grappling in any capacity. And he became just a very beefy power punching kickboxing guy, as you kind of alluded to. And that was the best transformation he could have made because that led him to TKO Gareth McClellan, not an impressive win, but I'm just going over what it led to his career doing. 
Olawaje, Bambose, once again, not impressive. Johnny Hendricks at that time, not impressive. Uriah Hall was decent. Amazing fight with Yo Romero. That was a decision. But before Yo Romero fight, which was an amazing back and forth, exciting fight, even though it was a decision, he still knocked Yo down a few times. That's an impressive accomplishment in his own right. But before that, he was on a one, two, three, four, four fight TKO KO win in the UFC. So clearly it paid off for him to make that switch until he met Israel Adesanya. And we know how that went and how embarrassing that was and how he got brutally finished in the second round and had nothing to offer. What concerns me is even though he's only had two fights since then, that was back in 2020. So along with the inactivity, I've not seen him change that style. Marvin Vittori, that was an amazing, great, legendary fight, back and forth, highly entertaining, even though Costa lost by unanimous decision. Great fight. If you haven't seen it, highly encourage you to watch it. But he didn't show anything new in his game. He showed the exact same Paulo that had made his way to Israel Adesanya and had been defeated. The Luke Rockhold fight, I did see bits and pieces of that fight. Admittedly, I've not seen the full thing, but I've seen highlights. And I did see some half-assed grappling exchanges, primarily with Paulo on top in those. But that's not enough to give me any type of confidence that he's made it a clear core part of his new and improved game plan in any way. Because even though Luke Rockhold was a very adept grappler and a very talented one and a very good BJJ artist, this is once again the Luke who's a shell of himself in 2022, so it's not really holding much weight that he was able to do that. All this to say, I don't even think Robert's going to try to press a grappling advantage that I feel that he clearly has because he's the same way. I hear all the time that he's like an Australian Games champion wrestler or some crazy shit like that, but I don't see the guy ever use it. I mean, he occasionally will defend a, a takedown, but... We just recently saw DDP do a Toshi pass on him and smash the guy and actually finish him for the first time in a while. So I'm a little bit concerned, and this is definitely not where I thought I was going to go when the gun was on me and I was forced to make a decision. I did not anticipate making this decision. This was completely on the fly uh, as of a few minutes ago. With Paulo Costa at a plus 205 and Whitaker at a minus 250, I was not thinking I was ever going to say these words. They were going to come out of my mouth. This is maybe my Kool-Aid moment. I think maybe Paulo Costa gets it done. I do. Because up until that DDP fight, I was very, very high on Whitaker. Like, as high as I am on DDP and as a fan of Drickus as I am, and I still am and all that jazz, I thought Drickus had nothing to offer Whitaker. I thought he was easily going to get destroyed, blah, 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 blah. And it was a complete and total opposite. And Whitaker easily was destroyed by Drickus Duplessis. And DDP smashed him with ease. And it was very it was very sad to see. And it makes me now wonder, as I was doing research for this fight, it has to come eventually for everyone at some time. And even though his nickname's the Reaper, I wonder if the Reaper has finally come for Robert Whitaker. He's taken a lot of damage. He's been in a lot of fights with the likes of Yo Romero. Those fights alone with Yoel have probably taken so much, you know, off of his chin, off of his ability to take shots, withstand shots, etc. All that damage accumulates. Getting smashed by DDP accumulates. He's not getting any younger. 
He's got a lot of miles. Paulo, yeah, you know, I, I was taking originally the approach of all the inactivity hurts. Maybe it's reinvigorating him. Maybe I'll look at it from that angle. Maybe the inactivities made him rejuvenated, excited. Maybe he has doubtful, but I'll say it. Maybe he's worked on new things in the meantime. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of question marks that, you know, since he hasn't fought in two years, we don't really know what he's going to look like. But unfortunately, for better or for worse, we have seen Robert Whitaker recently. And I'm kind of sad because it makes me wonder if it's the end of an era at middleweight for him. And maybe he should be strongly considering retirement as he already has been for a few years now. Maybe he should enjoy his time with his family, his health, things of that nature. I wish him all the best. But plus 205, that's a pretty tantalizing uh, money line for Costa. And like I said, maybe I'm taking the bait. Maybe I'm an idiot and a dumbass and I'll look that way come Saturday. But this is the type of guy Whitaker struggles with. Uh, up until Adesanya, Whitaker primarily struggled with big, beefy guys like Yo Romero who just punch your head off and just pressure the hell out of you. And that's what Paulo does. He's a terminator. He walks forward. He is able to withstand punishment as his fight with Vittori demonstrated to us. He is able to just keep coming forward as much as he can, pressure you, and that's going to take away a lot of tools that Robert Whitaker likes. Robert Whitaker likes his uh, karate boxing blitzes. He actually makes karate boxing interesting, unlike some other people at this stage of their careers. I like Wonder Boy, I like him, but dude hasn't been entertaining for a while. Whitaker blitzes in, uses that right high kick, that right hand, kind of like that. Uh, except it's like an orthodox double for him because he's orthodox, I believe, in his stance primarily. Uses things like that to just wear away guys and take that away. And yes, I know Whitaker is also good at taking those tools away from big heavy power punchers. <clears throat> like he made Jared Cannonier look silly and absolutely dismantled him. So I, I understand the road goes both ways. But just kind of a feeling taken over me as the show's progressed and I've been doing the analysis. Why not? Plus 205 money line for Costa. And if you really want to get bold and ballsy, KOTKO for Paul is at Paulo is at plus 400 right now. I would be safe and just stick with the money line. Uh, Robert is tough. He is durable. And yeah, he could be at the tail end of his career, but I just want to play it safe with the odds with that big of a disparity and just go with the plus 205 money line that way. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? What are you really losing if this fight doesn't, you know, pan out for Costa? Um, the Marab and Henry Cejudo fight to me, that just seems like such a clear cut Marab, uh, the Ian Gary Neil fight, uh, just looks like such a clear cut Gary, but this and the, uh, copy law of Hernandez fight are like the biggest so far, uh, kind of muddled ones to me where the outcome really just isn't that glaringly obvious. What do you think? Yep. I mean, absolutely, man. I, I can't believe that this is the first time. <laughs> the first four fights were completely on opposite sides. Uh, with Whitaker, you pretty much have to pick a method if you're taking him. You, you could take the 250, but I looked at the double method because I don't think it's going to be a submission. So if Whitaker did a uh, knockout um, with the decision uh, double method, it's the exact same as his money line. It's the exact same as his money line. So they're telling you that it, the submission is not coming. So, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't I don't hate it. If you're just doing money line, Paul Costa is such a better deal. Uh, like, 
like we were saying, these are tough fights. Um, maybe the toughest one is the championship fight, man. The the main event of the card. What do you think? Yeah, so this is tough, but the odds have recently moved in a way to where I feel once again a little bit more confident about it. Excuse me. So we have Alexander uh, Volkanovsky versus Ilya Taporia. So this is going to be for the 145-pound men's featherweight championship, and this is going to be a uh, five-round fight, each round five minutes, 25 minutes, and it's the main event of this pay-per-view card. And this one was, when I first checked the odds Monday, I believe, originally very close. I want to say at minus 120 to minus 115, somewhere around in there, that neighborhood. Since then, Volkanovski is now minus 125. Taporia is plus 105. So a lot more uh, shifting of the odds on this. But all things considered, I still think the odds should be even more drastic on this. This is one of the few... This is one of the few fights in MMA where I would normally say I I do believe the odds should be a bigger gap here. And this is the biggest fight on the whole card where my head really wants one guy to win and uh, my heart just wants another guy to win type thing. It's, it's really split on who I think is going to win and who I want to win in the worst way out of all the fights on this card. And I want Taporia to win. And throughout the week, I was actually very high on Taporia. I really thought he could get it done. And then as I started digging into the the tape and kind of studying and reading up, uh, once again, I can't give enough credit to Jack Slack. His article about the V-step and the pivot he did on Taporia really helped me think about this fight and kind of analyze things and do some research. After that, after watching tape, after all the research, I now think Volkanovski is going to win. And kind of here's how I arrived to that conclusion, regrettably so, unfortunately. I think there's the intangibles. I talk about tangibles and intangibles when it comes to predicting fights and doing analysis. The intangible for this is people are really discounting Volkanovski. They're really low on him after that Makashev head kick KO loss that he recently sustained in his attempt to get the 155-pound belt that failed. They're discounting him because of that, and they're also really high on what Taporia was just able to do to Josh Emmett. And while that is very impressive and a very advanced accomplishment and a huge feather in his cap, this has given me shades of when Yair Rodriguez made Josh Emmett look silly. And then he got the title shot off that to face Volkanovski for a 145-pound belt. And we all know how silly Volkanovski made him look. So while it is deserved that Josh Emmett is a very good litmus test and a very good elite gatekeeper to kind of make the determination at 145 pounds who gets to challenge Volk for the belt, we've already seen Yair Rodriguez make him look silly and then Volk made him look silly. Uh, Volk made Yair look silly. My gut's just telling me we're going to see the same thing with Taporia. Taporia made Emmett look silly, and Emmett just brutally flatlined, unfortunately, Bryce Mitchell, a guy I really like and a guy I'm a big fan of, proving once again his career's not over yet. He's still got some left in the tank, and that's great and all. But 
just because Taporia was able to, you know, withstand the onslaught and really make him look silly, I, I think it's going to be the same thing of Volkanovsky's now going to have his fun with Taporia, unfortunately. And one of the main reasons why I think that besides the intangibles of, you know, people being down on Volkanovsky because of the Islam fight, people being, uh, you know, overly hyped on Taporia because of the Emmett win, it's also kind of like right now Taporia is undefeated. And this also reminds me in the history of the 145-pound division of another guy who was undefeated and had a shot at the long-reigning king of 145-pound before Volkanovski, Max Holloway and Brian Ortega. That fight, a lot of people thought, was going to be a really close competitive fight. I watched it live, and it was a brutal beatdown. And Max Holloway gave Brian Ortega his first loss. And it was just absolutely very sad to see that Ortega just had nothing to offer Max Holloway and just my gut with those intangibles is telling me this could be the same thing for Taporia, uh, very reminiscent of that Ortega Holloway fight. And also there's the tangibles in that MMA is about what are your strengths? How can you amplify those strengths? How can you disguise your weaknesses? How can you identify your opponent's strengths, mitigate those strengths and increase their weaknesses? Everything that Taporia does well, because you can't do all things well in MMA. As much as people try to game plan, they try to prepare, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. You can only work with as much as you can your skill set and work on refining your skill set. And once again, trying to take away the other opponent's skill set. It's all about how do you amplify your strengths and mitigate their strengths and all that that I just mentioned. And so... For Taporia, that V-step that he uses and that pivot and those entries that he used and showcased so wonderfully against Josh Emmett to make Josh Emmett hit air, those are things that Volkanovsky is already used to countering. He's already used to being faced with those. And the tools that he has in terms of especially his kicking arsenal at his disposal is really what I think is going to play the biggest role in this. So Taporia taking a boxing-heavy approach is great. It's beautiful to watch, and it you know sets him up for a lot of really good KOTKO wins and just impressive knock-on-ass victories. But it also leaves him very heavy on his uh, on his left leg since he's orthodox as his primarily plant leg that left leg's forward. So he's going to leave himself like he has throughout numerous times in his previous fights, very open to calf kicks, which Volkanovski throws a lot of calf kicks. It's going to leave him open to some head kicks, some higher kicks. Volkanovski throws those higher kicks. He himself, as a victim of a high kick uh, KO, is going to probably be hell-bent on trying to incorporate that in his arsenal. Sometimes the best thing to get a fighter to incorporate new tools into their toolbox is being a victim of something. And I think him being a victim of that head kick is going to make him kind of hell bent on using head kicks more, especially against a guy so prone to them as Taporia. And we've already seen a far lesser fighter in the form of Jai Herbert, almost flatline Taporia early in his career with that high kick that Taporia is unfortunately just doing a very poor job of defending and leaving himself open to. So I think there's going to be a lot of kicking on Volkanovsky's part if he's smart. Calf kicks are going to wear on Taporia. He's not doing a very good job of kicking, uh, checking those. 
body kicks and then eventually I foresee a high kick finishing the fight, honestly. And that's kind of surprising seeing as how Volkanovski's not really been finishing fights lately. Uh, he did against Yair. That was a KOTKO, I do believe. So all this to say, and when it comes to grappling, <clears throat> don't get me wrong, Taporia is a very good grappler, uh, very good at BJJ, Greco-Roman base, originally primarily was a grappler when he first started MMA. I think as well-rounded and as like a jack-of-all-trades as Taporia is, I think it's one of those cases where Volkanovski is just kind of a master at things. And yeah, he's well-rounded and he's kind of good all around, but Volkanovski's like very glaring strengths are going to kind of trump that well-roundedness. And yeah, even though Vulcan, uh, excuse me, Taporia can hold his own in grappling, I think Volk's going to be just a little bit better. Even though Taporia is a very gifted striker and has very good boxing, I think Volkanovski's going to be just a little bit better. And all this to say, I really think all things considered, the odds are only this close because Volkanovski is coming off such a brutal loss, unfortunately, at a higher weight class. And he's going to win this fight, and he's going to be really obnoxious because I am not a fan at all of Volkanovski and any city kickboxing guys. And he's probably going to be like, Oi, mate, won't you let me try to get that 155 title again after I just got my ass kicked? And it's just going to be annoying, and everybody's going to slob on his knob and whatever. But Volkanovski's going to win. The odds should be a lot greater to reflect that gap that just exists in my mind that is so unfortunately severe between the two because I'm begging for Taporia to win, and God, I want to be wrong about this fight more so than even maybe the Gary-Neil uh, fight. I really want Taporia to win. He's probably my favorite fighter right now, if not top three, four, five, whatever. But, man, Volkanovski by KO, TKO, plus 250. I feel on my bones that's what's going to happen. You can try all day to game plan. You can try all day in training camp to work on your opponents and what they're going to do and try to predict it, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's very hard to deviate, especially when you're being challenged, when you're actually fighting, you're actually stressed out and being challenged. It's very hard to do things differently. You oftentimes under stress revert back to the norm. And the norm for Taporia and all of his habits, his traits, his tendencies, and the things that make him great and have gotten him to this point, unfortunately, at this final stage are now things that are almost liabilities and things that, unfortunately, just how the styles match up, play into Volkanovski's strengths. And it's going to be really hard for him to work on things like defending those kicks and those high kicks and those calf kicks without basically castrating his own game plan. What do you think? I love it, Bobby. I haven't said it yet today, so you know what this is. This is a knuck if you buck fight of the card. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, This one I'm going to probably clip at some point because this is going to be prophetic as shit when this comes true. Taporia is going to take the belt from Volkanovski, but not this fight. Oh, okay. Interesting. I think he does in Volkanovski Taporia too. I'm I am on board with you in this one. I am also on Volkanovski. Uh looking at it, Volkanovski got good kick punch combos, exploding punches. Uh he's got low hands, so he's open to counters, but I mean that's half of the fighters. 
He wants to stay standing. He's got great endurance. And I worry about Taporia's endurance as he's gone the full five just once in his career. Um, Volkanovski being a champion for so long, that's all he does anymore is these five-round fights. Uh, I think Taporia does have a pretty massive wrestling edge or at least grappling edge over Volkanovski. Taporia, one of the things I saw about him, I also want to say he's got good defensive body movement, but one of the things he does so well is he's got great like body shots. I have him as a body shot expert with his kicks, with his punches. Uh, I believe he had like a liver punch on one guy that he just took him to the ground. That's going to be hard on a guy like Volkanovski, and wrestling's going to be hard on a guy like Volkanovski just because Volk is so compact and short. Yeah. That, 100%. that body style is just, it's not, uh, it, it's just exactly the type of body style that is going to affect Taporia. And I'm, I think Taporia is great. I really like him too. Um, I think the UFC has great plans for him. And I think Taporia is going to be a really fun guy to watch for time to come. And I really do think he'll probably be champion at some point. Also, with the undefeated, I did want to mention this too. 14-0. and 0, um, We saw Volkanovski. He's lost both fives when he went up uh, trying to get that uh, double belt. When you lose like that, he's coming back and he's more motivated than ever. Taporia, he's already starting so high. Um, I It's one of those things you don't know what you don't know. So I think this is going to be a very good learning lesson for Deporia. That's why I think he's going to get a lot out of this fight. And I think overall, this fight's going to be good for Deporia's career. I think this is going to be one of those fights that kind of launches him to that next level. He hasn't faced a guy like Volk, and I think he's going to learn a lot. I don't know. I think it's either going to be a decision or a knockout. I could see it going to decision and Deporia just being like really gassed and tired at the end and starting to get worked. Or because he'd be in a KO, he gets worked so much that it gets an early stoppage. Not that he gets flatlined, but a, a, just a TKO that the the uh, ref jumps in. Um, I feel like we're seeing this one very similar. Yeah, this is probably going to be my haymaker because I see it probably having the best chance of happening. Uh, I wanted to say that it was potentially Paulo Costa, but... As much as I do think Paulo Costa will win that fight, I think this one in particular, the odds are just good enough and just realistic enough to have that uh, pretty like stark contra, uh, stark, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? The stark edge, I guess you could say, yeah. that I look for when it comes to these haymakers, that nice balance of realism, like realistic chance of happening outcome, plus tantalizing win odds, et cetera. It's a, it meets that criteria for me. Yeah. So, yeah, KO, TKO for Volkanovski but at plus 250. I think that's going to be my haymaker because, as you said, it could either be an accumulation from the volume and being gassed out and being worn out from not being uh, accustomed to five-round fights, or it could be – See, I lean more towards it could also, unfortunately, and I would hate for this to happen. I don't want it to happen, all that. But, like, I could also see it being an out cold from a head kick. So those, those two paths right there make me very confident in it, confident in it, excuse me, to make it kind of like also my LL Cool J because, once again, I think people are just sleeping on Volkanovski, and it's something I really want to take advantage of because the rest of the fights on this card – as we talked about before the show, 
the odds are kind of kind of kind of crappy. Let's be honest, uh, especially if you're going with the money line, you're, you're going to have to do something really outrageous to kind of compensate for the ridiculous money line on these fights. But yeah, I like it. I like that for Volkanovski. I feel like it's just something that you know I want to take advantage of because I feel like the odds makers really have it wrong with all the hype that Taporia is riding, and I believe it is warranted. But like you said, just just not right now. Yeah, absolutely. Bobby, thank you for hopping on, man. You got anything before we get out of here? Nope, just excited for the fights. Really pumped to watch this card. Uh, Follow us along on the socials. Thank you for all your support. Thank you for all your views, everything you do for the community. We greatly appreciate it. Can't do it without you. I know it's cliche, but we mean it. And uh, just keep liking, keep subscribing, watching, follow along. It's a fun ride. Do everything Bobby just said. And in addition, make sure you guys go over to bettergreen.com. You guys can read some of our articles over there. Bobby's posting stuff. I'm posting stuff. I'll have two two more UFC plays out there on premium articles. It's only $1 a month, guys, to get those plays. Uh, we're also adding a soccer guy. So we're going to start having soccer content, too, if you like soccer as well. And please head over to Sharps if you guys haven't already. That's where we post our bets, where we actually have our money on. You guys can see uh, our bets. You guys can tail them straight from the app. Just click the whale tail. It'll take you straight to your sports book. And, guys, thank you for watching. Tapping Vegas is it has never been better, and we're just going to keep getting better. And I'm we're pretty split. I'm kind of excited to see how this week turns out, Bobby. I am as well, man. Very excited to see how it plays out. Also, sorry, forgot one last thing. Uh, make sure you like and subscribe to Ian Gary's wife's OnlyFans, Brazilian Buns, at xxx.com. So please subscribe her. Ian really needs the money, and so is his nutritionist. <laughs> We're getting out of here. Thanks for watching, guys. Peace. Peace. better start listening to the better and green podcast you will not regret it trust me trust me trust me and hey i'm dean blandino welcome 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 to better and green hey to better and green hey to better and green hey listen in and get out that's what it's all about come on let's make cash now we always on spot and we cover old spot from the bottom to the top hey Shout out to Ethan, shout out to Wyatt, shout out to Ben. Welcome, welcome to our podcast. Better win green.